Hey, this is Kevin, the student pastor at Short Church of God. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We strive each week to bring relevant, practical, biblical teaching that meets you where you are. To stay up to date with what's going on at the church or to support the mission financially, head over to scog.com or download our app. I hope you enjoy the message. Good morning. Open your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're going to be talking about a really fun story or happening today in the scripture. Uh, So John chapter 6, put your finger there. If you use a a phone or an iPad, go ahead and click on that. Uh, John is a gospel, which is all about Jesus. It's one of the four uh, gospels. John is a unique gospel in that he uh, writes it later than all the rest of them and probably was like, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't put this in there, so I'm going to put these things in here. Passage we're going to talk about today is one of the unique times that John um, actually writes the same event as the other three. And that's very unique. That doesn't happen very often that a story or a happening of Jesus actually makes all four Gospels. That's, that doesn't happen that, that often, actually. And so uh, today's is one of these mega, mega stories that every single one of the Gospel writers said, this has got to be in there. So this is one of those, those really, really, really big things. So turn in your Bibles to cha- John chapter 6. Um, if you have the Shore Church of God app and you have an iPhone and you've already updated um, to, to iOS to the new 12 thing uh, after uh, October, you will notice that you cannot no longer use our app. Uh, because you have followed directions and upgraded your operating system, you will be you are being punished. Um, so I apologize for that. Um, I am... Uh, trying not to lose my Jesus on the customer service people uh, for that. So um, that's been my challenge this week. Uh, but um, so if you, if you have an iPhone and you haven't updated yet and you use the app, don't update because then you can continue to do that. Android users, you're okay. You just have an Android, so you're going to have all kinds of problems that way. Uh, but uh, so uh, just a little funness this morning. Um, so that's what's going on. Uh, we've got some uh, some happenings there uh, and we'll, we'll get that corrected as, as soon as we can. Uh, we don't actually in-house uh, do the app. Some of you think that Kevin and I work some magic in our app producers as well. That is not the case. Uh, so uh, that is outsourced to something else. So anyway, you don't really care about that. But um, the app is very, very, very helpful uh, to all of us in listening to past messages. It's the quickest and easiest way to give. Um, there's all kinds of uh, newsletter items on there, um, just staying up to date. So if you haven't l- checked that out, do check it out unless you have updated your iPhone and then don't check it out because you won't be able to do anything with it. Um, but there you go. All right. Uh, come to the table. We're d- diving into this series called Come to the Table and examining all these happenings in which Jesus invites someone to eat with him. Now, at some points in this time of eating, he is eating with just an intimate group of three, four people. At other times, at this come to the table type mentality, like today, he has invited 5,000 men with him. Uh, so in the, in the eating of 5,000, the feeding of 4,000, these huge numbers, they've only counted the guys. So if you add women and children onto that, it's probably up around 15,000 people have come to the table with Jesus. This is a colossal crowd, right? That's a lot of people. Um, you think you got Thanksgiving woes and if you're going to have enough turkey, let's think about trying to feed 5,000 people. This is a big issue. And so we're going to dive into that this morning and what that looks like. 
But Jesus is constantly meeting people at the table, and some things are happening when he comes to the table. Whether it's three or whether it's 4,000, the same type of, of themes happen every time he eats with people. They are this. Every time that Jesus invites someone to come to the table, he shows extravagant acceptance. He shows extravagant accept- acceptance. The second thing he does is he offers redemption. Every time someone eats at the table with him, they're offered redemption, a way out of their present mess. The third thing that happens is he shakes the cultural norms. He upsets the apple cart all the time. You think this is the way things should happen? Watch this. He always is doing this. These three things over and over and over and over and over and over again. If you read uh, the Gospels and you see the happenings of what Jesus is doing, he shows this extravagant acceptance. He shows this amazing uh, offering of redemption and he shakes the cultural norms and it is beautiful. So uh, the same thing, the same idea happens I think in our lives, when we come to the table in our own families, when we bring uh, Jesus to the table of our own families, these kind of central themes start to happen. Because think about it, when you need to restore order in the family, you, have, you come to the table, right? Um, when you want to banish someone from the family, they are not invited to the table, right? Thanksgiving dinner, they didn't make the list. Like, that's like the ultimate, oh, I'm in trouble now, right? So that's kind of thing. Like, I don't know if I'm going to come to Christmas dinner. I don't know if I'm going to come. Uh, you know, that's like the big threat that you offer because there's something about coming to the table that elevates the, the significance of the meal. It elevates. It's not a TV tray dinner. It's not just eating around. You know, there's sometimes you have fun when you're just doing the, the, the hand-picking things and you're watching TV at a Super Bowl party. That's nice. But there's something about sitting around the table. And having these deep, prolonged conversations that just just bring something to you. And it happens in our families as well. In fact, uh, doing the research for this Come to the Table series, I found out some really interesting things. I think you'll think this is interesting as well. Is the number one factor in kids being emotionally healthy and is a frequent family dinner. The number one factor in a... Wait, hold Hold it there for a second. The number one factor in kids being emotionally healthy is frequent is a frequent family dinner. Isn't that interesting? Now I know all of these are going to be uh, kind of in a socioeconomic issue, and I ha- you can make stats say all kinds of different things. But the truth is, people were doing these surveys and finding all these this data out, and the underlying factor was this frequent family dinner. The second thing is this: the number one factor in future academic success in children is frequent family dinners. So they took a survey of all these kindergartners that showed potential and were were scoring higher on all their different tests and they tried to find common denominators. And the thing they had was they all ate with their parents in a family dinner. Isn't that amazing? Number one factor in future academic success in children is frequent family dinners. The best safeguard against childhood obesity is frequent family dinners. The best safeguard. Now, I don't know if that means like you're eating less fast food. I don't know what, what that means or what ramifications for that is, but the best way to fight against childhood, childhood obesity, frequent family dinners. The best safeguard against teen eating disorders is family dinners. And that, that's nuts. 
I don't know if that's, I don't know what my brain starts thinking, why, 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 why? Is that because like there's accountability? Like, why are you not eating my chicken? That's good chicken. You better eat my chicken. You know, I don't know what that, what that is. Um, but if someone who had an eating disorder, I had a frequent family dinner like every night at five o'clock and I, my butt better be in that seat. Uh, so I don't, it didn't work for me, but it's the best determining factor for everybody else. Apparently, uh, uh, the best safeguard against teen eating disorders is family dinners. I don't, I don't know why that is, but that's amazing. I think it's accountability, knowing that you're accepted, knowing there's an opportunity for redemption and a place for your norms to be challenged. And finally, the best safeguard against teen suicide is frequent family dinners. What? I mean, as a parent, I'm like, oh, okay, then we're going to eat together. I don't care what the schedule looks like. You will sit down here and we will have food. Right? Because that's every parent's, like, nightmare. Right? The nightmare of all nightmares. Like, that would be going on. And so, frequent flame dinners, let's make it happen. It doesn't guarantee anything, but it's the number one common denominator in having a safeguard against teen suicide. So, uh, we get to step into those things. I think this is just interesting. And so, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about the elements that Jesus provides at dinners is what? He offers acceptance at family dinners. We get to offer this acceptance. He offers redemption at family dinners. We get to offer the redemption. Yeah, Bowen, you've had a rough day and you may have been a knucklehead all day long. So let's eat these. Let's eat this meal together. Let's have a conversation. Let let my temper come down. Let your temper come down and let's get on the pathway for redemption. Right. You guys dealt with the same thing in your in your families. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. And you're like, you will. I will put these Brussels sprouts in your mouth. And no. Okay. Uh, So. Is that not acceptable? Oh, well, my bad. Uh, I kid, I kid. He's not here today, so it's, I can say whatever I want. Um, and then finally, it shakes the cultural norms. Now, here's something I was, I was kind of thinking about, and this hit me this morning as I was going over the message, is how important it is to shake the cultural norms of your children and the people in your family at a safe, accepting, redeeming place of the a family table. Because if that you're, when you send your kids to college, their cultural norms... Get shaken. Because there's people that got raised differently than them. Whoa! Shocker. They don't believe all the same things. They have to deal with different things. There is a whole new world out there that, like, what is going on? But if you shake, you build in the way in which to deal with shaking cultural norms in a safe, accepting, redeeming place. Now you've given them filters and you've given them processes in which when, right? When Dominic is at Notre Dame and someone's talking crazy, he's like, oh, maybe they're right. I don't know, but I've never built the filters in to be able to deal with this stuff, to be able to filter that. Or he's like, you know what? My dad used to challenge me all the time at the dinner table. I can process this. Do you see how that works? Because I'm sure he got challenged at Notre Dame. I'm, I'm positive that his worldviews were like, huh? uh, so kinda, I went to a Christian university. My worldviews were like, huh? uh, are you sure you're a Christian? Okay. No? Oh. Okay. I don't know if you're a Christian. <laughs> like, <laughs> I thought that about one of my professors. My dad had to say, Jared, I've seen... Dr. Shively lead people to Christ. I'm pretty sure he's a Christian. Oh, okay. Because he challenged my worldviews. He challenged my norms. And I was like, ah, my life is over. These people are going to hell. <laughs> but at the dinner table, we get to experience this acceptance, experience this redemption, and experience this, experience this challenging of norms in a safe place that builds us and helps us to be able to process those things when we're not necessarily in a safe place. Does this make sense?
And so as we try to process how is the dinner table so important, it's because all these acceptance and the redemption and the challenging of norms happen. And Jesus gives us this, this example to us, and he does it so much so in this particular passage. There's a lot going on here, and I have about 2,500 words written, which usually means I'm going to preach for like 45 minutes. But I'm not going to do that to you today, but I've, I've got to figure out what that looks like. Um, because there's so much, there's layers on layers on layers. And as more I think about this scripture, the layers get even deeper because Jesus is doing so much in this, this instance, in this happening. And probably why all of the different gospel writers decided, hey, this needs to be in my gospel. I know Mark talked about it, but I'm putting it in there. I know Matthew talked about it, but I'm putting it in there. I know Luke put it in there, but I'm, I'm putting it in there. Because this is so important. There's so many layers going on in there. So let me set the context to you um, for John chapter 6. In the chapter before, um, in most of the other Gospels, and there's a big, huge happening in the world of Jesus and the disciples. John the Baptist loses his head. John the Baptist is executed. Now, most of the disciples had heard of of John the Baptist, had hung out with John the Baptist, had gone and seen John the Baptist. A lot of the people that were following Jesus were actually like disciples of, they had gone to the podcasts of John the Baptist, and now they've switched over and they're watching and listening to Jesus. So there's this, the continuation, everyone had a connection with John the Baptist, they at least heard him, and now he has been executed. And so that is happening, that's the happening that happens directly, like a week before this momentous occasion, what happens here. And so you can imagine kind of the, and not even to mention that John the Baptist is Jesus's cousin. So we've got some emotional stuff going on here. Like there's, there's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of what's going on. There's the prophet that we were walked, walking after is now dead. What do I do with this? How do I process this? My hero just got killed. How do, I, how do I deal with these things? And Jesus is in this moment. You can also imagine people are like, oh, okay, you're going to kill him. Well, I'm going to go to Jesus, and we're going to promote Jesus to this messianic warlord, and he's going to come and whoop you. I'm going to go get my dad type stuff, right? Because that's, you want revenge. There's always these martyrs in any kind of cultural revolution, right? Someone dies at some point, and then there, as the rebuttal against that, the wave comes. And we're in, I want you to feel the tension in Israel at this moment that that wave is, is starting to build. And Jesus is going, whoa, 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 it's not my time. Not, but he's also fighting, going, yeah, that was my cousin. Right? This is one of these moments in which the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus had to be going, like, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine. All these people are coming after you, coming to you and going, we we got to deal with this emotion. He's dealing with this emotion. This is one of these temptations of Christ because you know he wanted to go, okay, let's go. We're going to throw down. I'm done with this. Except that's not the kingdom he's building. That's the war that's going on in his heart, in his head. And that's where we find Jesus and these people in that kind of moment here. Also in John, he gives us this amazing detail that it's Passover time. Whenever you read the scripture and you see the words, it was Passover time, all kinds of, 
you can, sound effects in your head will be helpful because you have to deal with the identity of Passover. It is so ingrained, so strong into understanding the scripture, understanding what's going on. It's Passover time. What does that mean? Well, Passover happened in Exodus. It is the redemption and the pulling out and the freedom of the slaves that was the Jewish people and giving them freedom, how God provided that for them. And Passover is the celebration of that freedom from slavery. And so you've got a fervent group of people who their leader and their prophet has just been beheaded by the Roman state and they're wandering around. They go to Jesus at Passover time, which is the time of redemption. It's the time of freedom. We're already getting ready to go and throw down and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 let's chill. You've got, you feel that happening. When we read the scripture, we just kind of glance over. Oh, it's nice. Jesus fed 5,000 people. Oh, the little boy with five loaves and a couple of fishies with the Lunchable. Oh, that's so cute. It's a cute story. No, 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 no. This is a war story where Jesus is like, "Mm, coming down. Because it's not the way in which he wants to establish his kingdom. So do you hear that? Do you hear all that context? All those layers. Because that's very needed in how we understand the rest of what's going on here. Okay. John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus Jesus crossed... um, the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus' response to these people that keep on chasing him and wanting him to, them to teach him and to lead him is he gets on a boat and goes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is just a pretty good-sized lake. It's not like Lake Michigan Lake, but it's a good size. You can see across it. And so he runs to the other side, and I imagine like this Benny Hill, all these people, these 5,000 people are running across, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And they run over there like, yeah, and Jesus is like, okay. And so he teaches for a second. He gets back in the boat and, and goes over here. And they come running around across. You guys don't, don't see that? Okay. Anyway, um, so he runs across and then he keeps on doing it. All right. Because he's, he's trying like, okay, I'll teach you for a second, but you're getting, you're getting, it's getting a lot of control. I got to go away from it. And so they have been doing this back and forth. All right. Let's get back to the scripture. Um, far shore of Sea of Galilee and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where are we going to buy, where should we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So he gave the, an eloquent, mm. um, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over and those who had eaten. After people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is a prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Right? The same running away thing. All right, so the Passover is near. The Passover is near, which means why are all these people not working? Was it Labor Day? 
Was it Columbus Day? Like, what, what was happening here? Why was everybody w- wandering around? It's a great question. What were they doing? They were off work because it was Passover. It's the only time of the year they could get away from work. Right? They don't get off. There's not, oh, I put my 40. There's no clocking in, clocking out. There's no fast food. Like, oh, I'll just pick up some McDonald's today. It's, well, I got to grind this, and I got to do this, and I got to do darn kosher laws, and I got to do all these fun things to get any food. So what are these people doing? Chasing Jesus around the Sea of Galilee for a couple of days, trying to talk to him, trying to make him king. What they were doing, why they were all away from their jobs and why they were all away from their homes is they had packed up and were going to head to Jerusalem for the Passover, right? Jerusalem during Passover week goes from a town of 40,000 people-ish to 150,000 people-ish. Everyone, Israel empties to Jerusalem for this festival. Just can't. We have nothing like it. It is this massive, massive everyone moving to Jerusalem there. And so it's a three-day walk to, uh, from, from Galilee to uh, Jerusalem. And so what they were doing is probably just burning up all their food that they had for the walk, chasing Jesus, chasing Jesus around the thing. And so my theory, this is not confirmed by Scripture, so it's, it's, uh, it's not, I don't take this as the gospel, but my theory is why, I've always wondered this, why in the world does Jesus have 12 baskets of, of food left over? What are we doing with the leftovers? We're giving that to the poor? doesn't say we gave it to the poor. Like, it's going to rot. Well, unless Jesus has got some sort of Jesus preservative in there, which, okay, cool, he could have had that. Uh, but you know, if you're going to believe he made uh, 5,000 people with five loaves and two, and two fishies, um, then you can believe they're never going to rot. So well, I, I don't know. I, there's no account for it, so whatever. Um, but my theory is that this becomes the travel rations for everyone who just burned up their travel rations chasing Jesus around Galilee. That makes a lot of sense, right? Because of this. What happens in the Passover? What happens right after it? The people leave Egypt and they start walking in the desert and they get out for a little ways and go, oh man, we don't have any food. Who provides the food? God does for their trip. So the very bread and fish that Jesus is breaking and making is symbolic of the manna and of the quail that, that God provides the people in that first Passover. You see the symbolism? That's pretty cool. You know what happens right next door, next story in John chapter 6? This is even cooler. Jesus does this really neat thing. He walks on water. You know what happens in the Passover story right after it happens? Y'all, people that went to Sunday school in the flannel graphs know exactly what happens. They go walk through, and they, you, Charlton Heston parts the sea, right? You know, God parts, the water has control over the elements, and the Israel people walk through. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, oh, yeah, y'all wanted to walk through the sea? I just walk on top of it. I have control of the elements, too. He's living out the Exodus story in John chapter 6 for a new generation, for a new people. And you can understand why the people are getting a little mixed signals, right? Like, are you, are you going to be king? Like, you're doing all the God things. Even later in John chapter 6, he starts using I am statements. How does God introduce himself to Moses, the leader of the Exodus Passover? I am who I am. And Jesus goes in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And when he said that, I wonder if they did like a... 
like the Mufasa thing in Lion King. Like, I am. Like, oh, he said it. He said I am. Like, I just, I get chills thinking about it. Like when he just said, I am the bread of life. Like, here he goes. What's he going to do? Because I would have been one of the people like, okay, God. Okay, Jesus. Let's do this war thing. Let's go. I would have been there. That's where my brain, I would not have understood, and you wouldn't have understood either, the eternal implications. He's like, no, 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 no. When you come to my table, I bring you in. I accept you from the crazy world that you're in. I offer redemption for you, but I'm going to shake your worldview in this moment. Like, you think I'm just going to be a king. You think I'm just going to redeem little Israel and say, yay, Israel's back. Instead, I'm going to change the history of the world, the way in which everything operates, the spiritual condition of mankind. I'm going to change that. It's a little bit bigger than being a warlord in Israel at, you know, 60 AD, 30 AD or whatever it was at this time. Did you see the difference in that? But our little brains are like, whoa, you walked up water. You fed me. You healed some people. Let's go to war. She's like, I'm in a war, but it's a total different kind of war than what you're thinking. I'm going to redeem humanity in this moment. I'm going to change history in this moment. So it's bigger than that. When Jesus asks these people to come to the table, he accepts them, he offers redemption, and he shakes their worldview to its core. So the Passover is the most famous meal in Jewish history. It represents redemption, victory, and freedom for the Jewish people from slavery, and it's what God is offering to these people at this time. The acceptance of Jesus. Jesus is doing this amazing miracle. He's reenacting this Passover in this way um, to the nobodies, to the hill people, to the rednecks. Like this, that's who he's, he's speaking to. He's, he's not talking to the rich, the richer in Jerusalem. He's not talking to the powerful. Like if he was a PR guy, he's doing PR all the way wrong. He is talking to the nobodies. They have no will. They have, don't have the finances to back it up. They don't have the, the will to, to do anything, to influence anything. But that's who he's come to. To Galilee, a fishing area. Everybody, it's Passover time. Everybody that's important is already in Jerusalem. And you think about it, he's feeding 15,000 people in Galilee. That's pretty amazing. What happens if he shows up to to Jerusalem with 150,000 people and he feeds them. Like he's not doing PR well. Because in my mind, you either have a PR stunt with 10,000 people or you have a PR stunt with 100,000 people. Which one's greater? Right? Greater and less than? You got, you got that issue? Okay, good. Um, the, the doing this in Jerusalem makes a whole lot more sense. That's not what he's after. If he wanted to be crowned king, that's what he would have been doing. Instead, he's up to something totally different. He accepts these people. He wants to work through these people. He knows their heart. He knows what they're dealing with. Remember, these people are just dealing with the destruction of John the Baptist. His head got cut off. And they're going, what do we do now? The guy that we've been following, the guy that we've been getting baptized by, the guy that's been teaching us for years, we, we don't know where we're... He's, he's, he's calling those people to himself. He sees them in the the pickle they've gotten themselves by running around the countryside not having any more food to eat. He accepts them where they're at. He accepts them with the goofiness that they've got. He accepts them with the heartache that they've got. He accepts them with the pain that they have. 
And it's the same acceptance that he offers us when we come to his table today. With all of our pain and all of our frustration, maybe even the rage that we feel, the questions that we have, he invites us to that table. The redemption of Jesus. See, Jesus redeems this dicey situation. This could have gotten really bad really, really quickly. I hope you guys understand that. Like the, the, the politics of the time, the, 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 all it needed was a spark from Jesus. And we would have had a civil war, and then we would have had a, about 15,000 crosses from the Roman government you know, doing that. But the redemption of Jesus here is he, he sees this. He sees all the, the escalation and goes, okay, how am I going to navigate this well? I want to teach in this moment. I'm going to do this amazing miracle in this moment, but how do, I, how do I show them who I am but not bring apart this, this rebellion? When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Philip is looking around going, God, or Jesus, I got nothing. I have no idea how you're going to deal with this. Like he's just looking around going, I got a dollar. Like, I don't know what we're going to do. And some of us, I think we come to Jesus and it's kind of the same feeling we have. Like, ah, I got nothing. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. This is a huge problem. You got, because think about it. You got, 15,000 people who are hungry and cranky about that? It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter anything. You got five cranky, hungry people. You got one specifically hungry, hangry person. Like, you're going to have an issue on your hands. You got 15,000 people running around a mountainside. They've been chasing you around the Sea of Galilee, and I burned up all my food. And you got one kid with a Lunchable to deal with this issue. Jesus sees it and he speaks right into it. Out of your desperation, I can bring something out of that. Out of your frustration, I can heal that. Out of your brokenheartedness, I can heal that. He impacts the multitude that day. He redeems this bad situation and turns it into a blessing, just like he wants to do in our own lives. He speaks into that heartache of of losing John. He speaks into the confusion that's going on and he turns this crowd that's probably hurting and looking for direction and all that stuff. And every single person who ate of that fish and ate of that bread that day has to remember. You remember when? Instead of remembering the pain of that moment, they're remembering the blessing of that moment. And that's what Jesus does. And it's offered for us today. Jesus shakes the reality. So the people have their predetermined what they think is going to happen. They think they're going to go to Passover, do their religious thing, you know, have their little meal, do the stuff and do the rote things that they're supposed to do and be like, yay, I'm a good Jew. Right? It's really easy to make fun of the Jews on that, but as Christians, we do exactly the same thing. Yay, I went to church today. I stood up, sat down, listened to the pastor for a little bit. I didn't fall asleep today. Hoorah. You know, we just do those things. Okay, I'm good. And Jesus is like, you're in a norm, you're in this rotation, and I'm going to shake that all up where they got to, they didn't just 
go to Jerusalem to experience the Passover feast like they're supposed to as good Jews. They experienced a reenacting of God himself showing them the Passover again. I'm, you want the Passover? I'm going to give you manna. You want the Passover? I'll walk on water. You, you see how that's different? That's, that's escalated this whole thing to a, a whole nother level. And the people are around there, what is happening? He keeps on escalating and keeps on escalating because he goes, it's time. And I don't know if this is the frustration of Jesus or what, but it's like, there's more to it than this. You want to make me king, and that's not the point. There's more to it. And this is where he says some very controversial stuff. And, it, and people start abandoning him by the truckloads because he starts to say these things. He says, I am the bread of life. John 6, verse 35 to 37, when Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And everyone, you can say, I, if, if Jesus said that right after he fed 5,000, it's like, okay, that's cool. Yeah, never have to cook again. This is fantastic. But as I told you, you have seen me, and I still you do not believe, and all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. See, Jesus presses into this bread idea. You, you, you've tasted it. You've seen the barley bread. You, you've experienced me feeding you. So I am the bread of life. I am this. I'm what provides the nourishment. Not you running around and chasing this prophet or that prophet or doing these things or doing that religious light or this religious thing or holding your teeth right this and providing that sacrifice. It's me. I provide the sustenance. He's telling them it's not just these objects, these rites, or these duties that you do. It's by partaking in me. He goes on in verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man himself and drink his blood, which is getting kind of creepy at this time, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is the real food, and my body, or my blood, is the real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on the bread of life will live forever. Now we get really kind of creepy and very Halloween-y there for a second, but the idea is, and we're going to take communion here in this moment, so ushers, go ahead and grab, uh, grab the elements there and be prepared for that. But as we take communion, what Jesus is saying is, I am the bread of life. I am the, my blood poured out for you. You're going to drink that. So you're going to drink the redemption. You're going to partake in the life that I give. And unless you fully consume that, you don't have anything part in me. Some of you think it's a, a show that you go to or something you, a right you participate in. But when you consume the body and the blood of Christ, now you're fully partaking into the acceptance, into the redemption, and the shaking of our worldviews that Christ offers. Unless we fully come to the table, unless we fully participate in what God is offering us, we, we miss the boat. So as we take communion today, as we take these elements, the, the grape juice that represents the blood of Christ and unleavened bread that represents the body of Christ, 
I want us to think about what that means for us. What does that look like? How do I shape my life? How do I form who I am to really step into the acceptance of Jesus? That wherever I'm at, whatever I've done, no matter uh, what is in my past, no matter what is in my present, that he loves me for my future. And he has a future for us. That at this moment, at this time, he's calling us to him. That he offers a way of redemption. That because of this body broken for us, because of this blood poured out for us, we get to be washed clean. We get to live life restored. When we partake of the bread of life, we get to have life. There's a reason he's using these words. They're very intentional. Because these people, these Jews had built their life around routines and rituals and rule obligations and not partaking in who God was. And if I'm honest with you, it's real easy to build my life around rituals and rules and obligations and not partake in who Jesus really is. And what is Jesus offering me and you this morning? He's offering acceptance in a world in which you don't feel accepted. He's offering redemption in a way that always tell in a world that tells you you're not good enough. And he's willing to change the script of your life, willing to change how you view the world and shake it and turn it on its head. Know that you are something more than you think you are. As we accept these elements this morning, know that you hold something amazing in your hands. A reminder of who God is and what he wants to do in your life. That just as he fed those 5,000 men on that mountainside that day, he wants to feed you spiritually, to restore you, to nourish you. It's an amazing blessing that is offered you this morning. Here at Shore Church of God, we offer open communion. You don't, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are more than welcome to take communion with us today. You don't have to go to a certain class or do anything like that. You are welcome to take communion with us this morning. Dean, would you bring me some elements, please? In this next song, I want you to think about what we've talked about today about the acceptance of Christ, about the redemption of Christ, about how he can shake how you think the world works. Where are you falling short in that? Where can you come to the table? How do you need to be nourished by God this morning? So as you think and reflect on those ideas this morning during this next song, partake in the elements at your own. But let me pray for these as as we prepare to hand them out. God, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this moment. God, we ask you to be with us. We ask you to guide us. We ask you to humble us enough to be able to be receptive to what you're trying to teach us. God, we get so busy and so caught up in our own way that we miss the miracle that you're doing in our lives. So Lord, right now in this moment on the Sunday morning that you would slow us down enough to see what you're up to. God, that we quiet our spirits, quiet our hearts, quiet our minds to come in contact with you. God, some of us are running around like chickens with our head cut off because of the pain in our hearts. We've lost loved ones. We've, we're hurting because of terrible things in our lives. Maybe we're looking for direction in, in all kinds of different places. God, that we need to, instead of trying to force the issue, force something else to be our king, that we need to come in contact with you, humble ourselves before you to partake in the bread of life. God, this morning that you would be our nourishment, that you would be where we find 
our nutrient. That you would be the place that restores us. That you would be what gives us life. Lord, as we take these elements, we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that we're not too far gone. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you redeem us. That you have a hope and a future for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us at church this week. I hope you enjoyed this week's teaching. If you have any questions or comments, shoot an email to office at scog.com. To continue to support our mission to reach, grow, and serve our community for Christ, you can give online at scog.com or through the app. See you next week.